right now on Matter of Fact. He's one of the most accomplished artists of our time. Very few people have been uh, awarded the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. What a rare group to be a part of, and truly uh, something I don't take for granted. Following in the footsteps of other greats. There's been a tradition, particularly among black artists, of us speaking up and, and defending our people, defending our rights. John Legend talks with Soledad about why he's raising his voice for justice. We're all involved in this democracy, and we should all have a say in how it's run. Today, I'm talking with the award-winning composer, performer, activist, philanthropist, advocate, the amazing John Legend. John, so nice to see you. Thank you for talking with me. Great to see you, Soledad. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you for asking. The last time we spoke, really talking about your activism, was uh, when I was doing a, a documentary that, that featured you about 11 years ago. And making tangible, big change in this country was something that was important to you then. It's as important to you now. Tell me a little bit about that, that drive to, to make change. Well, I always looked up to uh, change makers. I, I looked up to civil rights activists, people who led movements that liberated people, that brought more justice to people, that brought more equality to this country, people like Dr. Martin Luther King, but all the people that marched with him, all the people that helped fund him, helped support him, the artists who supported his movement, people like Harry Belafonte and Mahalia Jackson and Aretha Franklin, people who sang at these events, but also used the resources uh, that they had uh, garnered from being successful in their own careers and took those resources and funded the movement uh, over the years. And so I always looked up to these artists, uh, not only for creating art that was impactful and inspiring for uh, the activists uh, out there, but also for getting involved, putting their uh, careers on the line, putting their uh, money behind and supporting uh, these movements that were really about changing this nation and changing the world. And so I always believed that when I became successful as an artist, that that would be part of who I was and what I did in the world, that I was gonna uh, become a successful musician and use that position to, uh, to make change in the world and make an impact in the world. And I've been trying to do it ever since. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up and, uh, and, and about your parents? They were both musically inclined, right? Yeah, so I grew up in Springfield, Ohio. It's a small blue collar city uh, in the Midwest, of course. My dad was an auto worker uh, for 30 years and, and he, he was also an artist. He uh, played the drums and sang at my church, but he also was a great visual artist. He could do beautiful pencil portraits and, and painted beautiful portraits and also designed clothes and, and now he has a hat company. So he was always very creative and artistic. And uh, my mother was our church choir director. She uh, stayed at home and, and taught us at home. We were homeschooled for quite a bit of our uh, grade school years. And uh, she was very musical and very creative as well. And so I was raised in a home where music was valued and loved and, and the arts in general were valued and loved. So we're all very creative and, and, and uh, were encouraged to be that way uh, from, from a very young age. Did you have a lot of clarity that you're gonna be a, a, a musician successfully? I have to imagine you kind of saw a path. 
When you're 15, you don't really know what that path is. You don't know what's involved in in becoming a solo artist, what it means to become a singer-songwriter, and what it means to develop uh, a voice as a songwriter, and what it means to to uh, get a record deal and all the things that go into being discovered. You just know you want to be discovered. You have this talent. You want people to hear it. You want people to see it. And uh, at that age, I didn't know what it took to make that happen. But I believed that I had something that I wanted to share with the world, and I wanted the opportunity to do so. When we come back, is punishment the same as justice? It's interesting here you call it the criminal punishment system. We have to decide, is this really the best way to deal with the harm that these people have perpetuated? Is this the best way to actually keep everybody safer? And, and I propose that it's not the best way. I read that your, your mom had some interactions with the criminal justice um, system. Yes. How did that shape and frame how you started thinking about dealing with those issues as an adult? Yeah, so several of my family members have either gone through our jail system or our prison system, but what happened to my mother specifically impacted us because she spiraled um, after her mother died and uh, had a drug addiction and uh, had some run-ins with the police and was in our jail system in our local community for a little bit. And what I learned from that and what I've learned from other interactions that my family members have had with the criminal punishment system is that uh, so many times we take people who are hurting, people who are depressed, people who are dealing with uh, addiction issues, and we treat them as criminals instead of as people who actually just need help. It's interesting to hear you call it the criminal punishment system, right? Which, of course, yeah. usually people refer to it as the criminal justice system. But in yeah. so many instances, uh, I think you're right, justice is, is missed. I, I remember, I mean, I was not that young when I realized that jail was really full of people who just couldn't pay the bail, that they actually hadn't yeah. been determined to be guilty or innocent of anything yet. And our cash bail system is so interesting because it's rare in, in the world. There's very few uh, nations, we're one of the only nations in the world that actually uses a cash bail system. And we've grown up watching Law and & Order and watching all these other shows, and we've become so accustomed to the idea that people have to pay to get out of jail pre-trial before they're ever convicted of a crime that we think it's normal. But it's not normal that you're only in jail because you're poor. And there's so many people in our local jail systems who are merely there because they haven't been convicted of a crime, but they don't have the $500, the $1,000, the $1,500 to get out of jail uh, pre-trial, and they're stuck there. And not only are they stuck there, but that the fact that they can't afford that is used as leverage against them because you can get them to negotiate all sorts of things that aren't in their best interest when it comes to plea bargaining and all these other things, and it's used as a tool to punish poverty, used as a tool to punish powerlessness in the system, and it's not fair, and it should be eradicated. The person, obviously, who's incarcerated at the time, obviously, the implication to that person is huge, but sometimes I think we even forget about family members, right? I mean, you you will lose your job. Even if you're just, you, you miss yeah. three days of work in a row, for many people, that's, that's it. When you take one of the parents away from a kid, when you take uh, a parent's income away from a family, when you 
uh, take the 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 support that a parent can provide to a kid uh, away from them, and then how much that often ends up perpetuating the cycle where uh, kids that have a parent in jail or prison uh, for a significant period of time, they're usually considered people with adverse childhood experiences, uh, and those adverse childhood experiences then lead to them having issues in school and with the criminal uh, punishment system as they go on in life. And so you're perpetuating this cycle of punishment, of, of uh, powerlessness, of poverty, of all these things by locking up that one individual. And we have to decide, is this really the best way to deal with the harm that these people have perpetuated? Is this the best way to actually keep everybody safer? And, and, and I propose that it's not the best way. Coming up on Matter of Fact. One of the things we haven't talked about in your activism is a re-entry. Well, for too long, we continued the punishment after people were locked up. How do we unlock the future for those who've served their time? One of the things we haven't talked about in your activism is a re-entry. And of course it's challenging um, when you think about somebody who's been incarcerated. Talk to me a, a little bit about your um, organization, Unlocked Futures. What, what, was, yes. what is that? Well, for too long, we continued the punishment after people were locked up. We, we said, not only have you been locked up for this period of time, not on, only have you been taken away from your career or job or whatever you had, taken away from your family, uh, and uh, taken out of society and put in an inhumane institution, not only have we done all that to you, but when you come back to society, we're gonna make it hard for you to get a job, we're gonna make it hard for you to vote, we're gonna make it hard for you to get housing, we're gonna make it hard for you on every level to be a legitimate participant in the economy, in society, in uh, democracy. So we've been saying, let's stop doing all of that. Let's make it easier for people to get a job. Let's make it uh, easier when they have an idea for uh, uh, philanthropy, particularly because they have particular experience in, in uh, dealing with incarceration and what that impact is. If they have a particular idea that needs funding and needs support, we're gonna support them. So we joined up with Bank of America and New Profit, which does venture philanthropy. Uh, we teamed up with them and said, we're gonna start funding the ideas, the new businesses or new nonprofits that these uh, formerly incarcerated people and people who have been impacted by the system, because we know there's not a lot of other sources where they can get funding. We're going to support them by helping them uh, learn from their fellow uh, cohort members and also experts in, uh, in startups and all these other uh, areas of their business. Uh, we're going to help them get these businesses off the ground. We're gonna help them get these organizations off the ground, make them successful. And you know, when so many aspects of the system are saying, we don't wanna employ you, we're gonna let them employ themselves. It has bipartisan support, generally speaking across the board, which is great yeah. but these days. Not everything has bipartisan support. Although there are some yeah. states uh, that where they throw up obstacles to I think the already difficult task of re-entry for people who have been yes. incarcerated. Talk to me a little bit about what, what's happening in the state of Florida, because I know you've been very personally involved in, in helping, uh, actually, you know, help people pay for those things to be able to overcome some of those obstacles. So what happened was um, this amazing organization led by Desmond Mead called the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, and there were literally over a million people who were disenfranchised because 
They've already served their time, but they had a felony on their record, and the law in Florida says it's almost impossible for them to get their voting rights back. A permanent uh, stripping of their voting rights was pretty much the law of the state, unless you had special exceptions and special consideration by the governor, which was very difficult to get. So that was the law. Florida was one of the only states in America that had permanent uh, stripping of voting rights with a felony conviction. And we have to understand, a felony conviction sounds like murder and rape, but felonies are very broadly defined. There, it could be as, as small as, I think, stealing a few hundred dollars worth of merchandise. It could be a, quite a range of, of crimes that are included in the definition of what a felony is. And that's why there were over a million people who were disenfranchised by this law. And so, Desmond created a bipartisan coalition who went out there and got Amendment 4 passed. 63% of the voters in Florida voted to restore voting rights to uh, folks who had been convicted of felonies and uh, had done their time already. However, the state legislature and Ron DeSantis decided to make it as hard as possible for even those people who had been uh, re-enfranchised by their state uh, fellow citizens uh, to vote. They uh, said, well, if you have fees and fines, if, if, if uh, you have any money that you owe, you're still considered not having fulfilled your sentence. And so what that did was put hundreds of thousands of people back in the place where they were disenfranchised. And so we raised money to help pay off people's fees and fines for the ones that could actually figure out what they owed. Uh, but it has really uh, dampened the impact of what was a monumental uh, amendment to the state constitution voted on by well over 60% of Floridians. Next on Matter of Fact, what does progress look like? Some days I'm, I feel like we're, we're taking steps backwards. We can't take it for granted that progress is just gonna keep going. We have to continue to defend it and fight for it. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Uh, I'm curious um, how you feel about the passing of, of John Lewis, of course, who was, you know, I think the modern day through line for, for younger people who, who weren't around yeah. when the march actually happened. Yes, it was a huge loss. He was literally on that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, literally beaten within, you know, inches of his life, literally put his body on the line so that all of us could vote. And so I think it's important for us to realize that and contextualize that uh, so that when we're talking about voting rights now, uh, we realize that this has always been contested. This has always been a struggle. And there have been many more years in this country where uh, folks were actively excluded, actively disenfranchised, actively denied their voting rights than there have been years when we've been pretty close to full suffrage. And we still have a ways to go. We have to be inspired by John Lewis. We have to be inspired by Dr. King and all the folks that organized the marches in Selma and all across this country saying it's important that all of us are included in the franchise, that we're all citizens impacted by the laws that our representatives create, that we all are part of our tax system. We're all involved in this democracy and we should all have a say in how it's run. The right to vote is so 
clearly ensconced in our constitution. But some days I'm, I feel like we're, we're taking steps backwards in terms yes. of um, how we think about people's rights and opportunities. So, you know, we've made progress through all these years, but then whenever we make progress, there are forces of backlash that are out there. In, uh, in the Reconstruction era, we saw Ku Klux Klan emerge. We saw all these um, black codes and Jim Crow laws uh, happen that uh, were a true backlash against the progress of the Civil War and the post-Civil War amendments. And then we've seen it with uh, uh, the gains that were made in the Civil Rights era. And then we've seen it after the election of Barack Obama. And now we've seen it uh, with the election of Joe Biden, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, was in many ways powered by the black vote. We've seen backlash to that as well. And that just means that we can't take it for granted that progress is just gonna keep going. We have to continue to defend it and fight for it because the forces against progress are still there and they're still gonna fight too. Just ahead on Matter of Fact. Do you ever worry that taking a very political stance, you know, is gonna hurt you? Is there a price to be paid? I mean, you're a, a musical star, you're a TV star, too. Do you ever worry that taking a very political stance, um, you know, is going to hurt you? Because you're very outspoken about things that I think make some people very uncomfortable, frankly. Um, I think it's worth it to uh, speak up for people who need to be defended and whose rights are, 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 are being contested. Um, I think it's important that our country makes progress on these issues. Um, and it's worth it to me to occasionally lose some fans. Um, though I believe I also gain fans because people appreciate me telling the truth. And I think they want artists to tell the truth and they want artists to be themselves and be authentic and, and um, not be afraid to talk about tough things. And like I said before, there's been a tradition particularly among black artists, of us speaking up and, and defending our people, defending our rights. And uh, I come from a tradition of that. I'm walking in their footsteps, and um, I believe that's part of who I am as an artist. And I wouldn't give that up just so I can uh, gain a few more incremental fans. I appreciate um, this long discussion as part it's of your life. It's been my pleasure. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. To see all the interviews featured in our special series, The Matter of Fact Listening Tour, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.